Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Since this verse from Lever 65 inspired the name of this podcast, I thought the idea of dipping our wings might be a nice image for this particular series, where we choose a book or text and take a deep dive into it. This led me to consider calling the series Deep Dips, which I note, on saying it aloud, sounds profoundly silly. That doesn't mean I won't still use it, We'll just have to see if it sticks. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Love is the law, love under will. Thanks for having me, Darren. (laughs) It's great to be here. I guess uh, we're having each other, really, because uh, I guess we'll make this kind of a tag team type of show if we decide to call it Deep Dips. Deep (laughs) Dips. That's still up for grabs. Yeah, I'm I'm comfortable with Deep (laughs) Dips. Uh, that that helps people to realize uh, this is an important subject yeah, that this we're is, dealing th- with. That's here. what we're doing here. We're dipping. We're dipping <laughs> deeply. <laughs> I think if we can't say it with a straight face, it's probably a good sign. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good sign. Okay, so today we're going to be uh, taking a look at a deeper look at the uh, Dao Te King, as Aleister Crowley entitled it. Uh, And I mention that because of the fact that we're going to be looking at his quote-unquote translation of the book, Um, which, I mean, it's, I'm not trying to be cynical by putting that in quotes, but it's, I mean, honestly, it's an interpretation of a translation. He, yeah, he's very transparent in the introduction about the fact that he did not translate the book and then still puts his name on the cover as, uh, as the, the translator. So it it looks uh, like this is, uh, oh, you know the name of the translator. I keep forgetting it. James Legg. James Legg. It's the SBE edition that he was looking at the uh, Max Mueller edition, the encyclopedia publication called the Sacred Books of the East that Max Mueller put out, uh, which Crowley is fond of. He recommends about five or six of those volumes to students, including this one with the the books of Taoism with the Tao Te King, and then also, um, I'm going to get this wrong, it's something like the Guangzhou is the other one in the same volume, and uh, but he has... Uh, critical things to say about Legg's translation as well as scholarly editions of Eastern classics uh, generally, which is why uh, the need for this, which is not a scholarly edition, but um, one with uh, the approach of someone with spiritual background and uh, some attainment at meditation. And uh, and, and he, he claims also uh, that because of his walk across China, uh, he's uniquely positioned to understand the minds of Chinese people, uh, uh, and so can better understand what they mean by words in Chinese languages, even though as far as I know, he didn't have that 
much of any Chinese language. Do you know how much of the it's Mandarin not, or it's not entirely clear? Is he it? spoke? No, it's not. But uh, he, to be fair, uh, he was widely traveled over the entire world, and he really did sort of get involved with uh, these different cultures to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. How deeply is a matter fi- for biographers, I suppose. But uh, and it's a it can certainly be debated. But it, he certainly intentionally got involved with many different cultures and many different religions religious groups and uh um so i mean to be fair he did have he did put himself into other people's frames of mind the argument against uh at least what passed for scholarly translation in the you know the 19th century he says until his time translators had invariably assumed with absurd naivete or more often arrogant bigotry that a chinese writer must either be putting forth a more or less distorted and degraded variation of some christian concept or utterly puerile absurdities even so great a man as max muller who we mentioned earlier in his introduction to the upshads uh, seems only half inclined to admit the apparent triviality and folly of many passages in these so-called sacred writings might owe their appearance to our ignorance of historical and religious circumstances. So it's an argument in favor of what we now call Orientalism. Uh, the idea that what he's fighting against is an academic culture that thinks the choices are either you know, de- the degraded Christian doctrine where, oh, you know, the Asian person uh, seems to have an instinctive understanding of charity, which is good and cute. Uh, it's just too bad they don't understand that it comes from Christ. Or, oh, look at this. They, they, they think God has a cat's head. Isn't that adorable and juvenile? So it's an uh, academic tradition that Crowley thinks looks down at Eastern people. And his counter is that this idea, this kind of orientalist idea that um, the minds of Asian, not that the minds of Asian people are distinctly different, but that Asian, uh, the the various cultures in Asia uh, have their own mysteries and their own truths and their own ways of thinking that are distinct and not usefully referred to European concepts so that they need to be taken uh, on their own as independent, you know, streams of ideas with independent histories, and that they are somehow ineffable to the European mind uh, as, as he's approaching it. So we don't like this idea now because we feel like it, uh, it, 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 it others people and makes them both less than human and more than human because their mysteries are better, but maybe their cultures are somehow degraded or, or something. It's a, it's an idea that that modern people are hostile to, and that's fine. But Crowley's saying here that taking the texts for themselves is more helpful than thinking of them in in reference to European ideas that we already understand. And uh, but but in what way? He's uniquely positioned to do that just because of his, you know, few experiences with people on the ground over someone who's deeply studied the language I find a bit mysterious. Uh, It seems like, because what he does is then he goes on to try to interrogate specific wording 
and say that he understands the words better than people who've deeply studied Chinese, <laughs> just by ver- uh, so so I find that a bit uh, a bit specious. But, but well, I mean, uh, he does he does mention uh, in the in the introduction, if I'm not mistaken, uh, unless I'm mixing it up with something else. He uh, mentions the fact that by looking at all these different religious uh, groups from various different cultures from around the world, he recognizes the fact that they're all. They all are intrinsically human. They all have the same human apparatus that they're looking at the universe with. And so there are so many similarities as a result of that. Um, the difference is being cultural, which I think actually is in line with uh, modern thought on that subject. The fact that, uh, like the recognition that we are, for instance, we, you and I sitting here, are looking at things through a Western lens, mm-hmm. um, which is very colored by our Western culture. And it does make it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for us to see things from the point of view of somebody outside of our framework for viewing the world. Yeah, I, um, I think that's right. Um, and, and we can talk more as we go about uh, how, how we think this translation reads um, and whether we sort of buy it as being more authentically more authentically Lao Tzu um, and and how we've whether or not we're even qualified to talk about that having not read the original (laughs) in Chinese Uh, but I mean my personal feeling is that we have to kind of take this as a Thelemic text more than a Taoist text um, because I see a lot of uh, Crowley's biases bubbling to the mm, surface. And, absolutely. Um, another um, sort of interesting, and I do buy this thing about spiritual attainment, like the fact that Crowley has really done a lot of yoga and a lot of magic, uh, that he knows some of the territory in terms of what metaphysics look like from a human perspective. Uh, that that part of it, I think, uh, when when this this translation talks about what I think of as being meditation advice, I think it's doing fairly well. Let's look at, at the specific translations Crowley uses for the word Tao. He says yeah, he has are, three points that he uh, yeah. uh, uses that uh, he says are commonly used to interpret the Tao in a Western framework. The three words are reason, the way, and to on. To on, which is like uh, Platonic Greek for being or something like this um ontology i believe comes from that uh oh root. cool that's helpful what did you uh what did you think of this what do you th- i mean his did, emphasis did anything out of it his emphasis is the fact that none of them are really quite uh, adequate to get at what the Tao is and i almost feel like in order like reading that introduction is it's a great introduction to read, but then it feels like uh, you only really, really get really get the most out of that after having read the the rest of the text, and then go back and read the introduction again. Yeah, he does say that he's concerned that 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 he's assuming other people have a significant amount of acquaintance with the subject. <laughs> uh, the one I think people are probably most familiar with is the way. Uh, Tao being the way, and so what Crowley says is that nothing exists except as a relation with other similarly postulated ideas. Nothing can be known in itself, but only as one of the participants in a series of events. Reality is therefore in motion, not in the things moved. 
We cannot apprehend anything except as one postulated element in an observed impression of change. One postulated element in an observed expression of change. So it's not that we're comparing objects to other distinct objects, but that when we talk about an object, we talk about it necessarily as a thing moving through, uh, through time and how, that it exists from different perspectives at different points along the timeline. And so the idea that Tao is is the way, um, it's maybe not necessarily a defined road, but it's this, it's this idea of, um, of, of the, the kinetic movement of, of objects through, through time. Um, that Taoism is this kind of force that, uh, not Taoism, but that the Tao is this kind of force that, um, that exists as movement maybe even prior to the objects moved so that the fundamental ground of existence is this is this thing about changing and moving uh, it's a kinetic force uh, and that the the objects come later are 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 added the, are added to movement yeah it's it's, it's one of these uh, things that like this portion of it causes me to think in terms of uh like having going back mentally to the idea of uh physics uh it and i don't know how much of this being an ancient text it's it's really hard to know how much of like i mean obviously that's going to be my mind going to that place but it makes me think of relativity Mm-hmm. And it makes me think of the idea of uh, force potentially being seen as coming before matter and and uh, being the prima causa of matter, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, something along those lines. That's where my brain wants to go. But again, I don't know if that's just my natural Western inclination and coming from a background of having read physics books as a teenager and whatnot. Yeah, I don't think that that's wrong. Um, I think that the um, the... Uh, the, oh, this is a fun way to introduce this early in our reading series uh, to uh, listeners who may just use metaphysics whenever they uh, want to say spooky shit. <laughs> uh, metaphysics includes spooky shit, but um, the example I was thinking of on the way over here is like a bowling ball dropped from height and the forces involved. So if you're doing physics, you think about objects in relation to forces and the gravity and the friction acting on it and the, the atmospheric pressure, and you try to calculate the speed. Whereas if you want to do metaphysics, you have to think about what are forces at all? Where do they come from? Uh, um, is there any sorts of grounds of, of movement? Why is there movement? Uh, and then uh, before you get to bowling ball, you have to have objects and matter. And so what is object? <laughs> How, uh, where, from whence does it derive? Uh, things like uh, not just causes, but what are causes? What is the first cause? This, uh, this sort of thing. And so um, what we're looking at here is a, one explanation of, of metaphysics that you're right, puts force primary over object. Uh, it says um, in chapter one, uh, unmanifested it is the father of heaven and earth and manifested it is their mother. Um, and I, I, I take it that the reason it mentions the father first is because it thinks of the unmanifested as primary being before the manifested. Not primary, but but earlier somehow, uh, and that uh, the manifestation comes out of this unmanifested um, force. 
Yeah, so I think that's right. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the introduction? I think I had three things that I wanted to say, but I've forgotten what the third one is. Well, there was the... We were talking about the... Uh, um, we, we covered the first of the three definitions, mm -hmm. um, Western definitions of the Tao that Crowley refers to. Mm -hmm. um, the second one was reason. Am I not mistaken? Uh, yeah, Am I so not mistaken? reason's the first. We covered the way, which is the second, and two on is the third. So, uh, yeah, say something about reason. Ah, reason. Just to clarify, it's can we read that little portion yeah, that... Of the Tao is reason in this sense, that the substance of things may be in part apprehended as being that necessary relation between the elements of thought which determines the laws of reason. In other words, the reality is that which compels us to connect the various forms of illusion as we do. And since we're not assuming that listeners uh, have come in with the reading prepared, I should go, go to this one part again. The substance of things is the necessary relation between the elements of thought which determine the laws of reason. So the, the substance just is the elements of thought. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one for me to wrap my head around. Uh, I've been over that paragraph a few times trying to <laughs> suss out exactly what that's trying to convey in terms of what substance and how that it, basically it's a <laughs> it's a bit of a, a difficult one to chew on at least for me we can uh go to kant because we know crowley wants aa people to read kant and there's something about the way there's things in themselves which are ineffable except that they convey sense impressions and then our sense impressions are subsumed under our instincts of space and time and then the space and then then those uh, things through our filter of space and time, which are um, not not instincts, uh, they're called uh, uh, faculties, faculties of space and time, and then are subsumed under special concepts. And special concepts are things like extension and limitation and, and these things that we already uh, assume uh, that are sort of built into our makeup as being modes of, of perception, like our, our understanding, our spatial awareness, for example, is is fundamental uh, and these are seen as being special concepts that are just part of the human makeup and so we can see that this idea of of reason is something to do with a universe that creates human beings that have these particular perceiving faculties so the reality is related to the the epistemology but then we're committing the crime of european europeanizing things <laughs> which is the whole point of this text uh, to start with is to avoid Europe, Europeanizing things. Yeah, uh, for me, like, as far as that goes, the way I was conceptualizing this is ironically um, related directly to conceptualization and the way that the mind works regarding conceptualization and the, the difficulty in apprehending the Tao and what the Tao is uh, comes from the fact that we have only our minds which conceptualize things mm -hmm. to work with and the problem being that no matter what we come up with we have a conceptualization we don't have the Tao um, so the Tao being that which is underneath the underlying reality to things at least this is one way that I've been looking at it and this is just playing with it so this is not me describing what it actually is or anything like that no but I think that sounds right this idea of like conceiving itself being 
the clue and then the Tao being necessarily ineffable. Um, there's, there's, there's something uh, workable there. It's difficult because I, I don't know that that... Because I, I do feel like there's something there, but I don't know that it necessarily all lines up together with everything else mm -hmm. that's being said in the text. Uh, yeah, let's talk about, since we've done both reason and the way, let's, let's do two on, and then maybe before we go into, um, before we go into looking at chapters one at a time, let's do our general impressions of the text, because just this question of everything that's going on in the text is a big question. Uh, two on, uh, beingness, but also non-being, or becoming these relationships, Platonic ideals, and then becoming being. Uh, Crowley says that the you might think then that these are the best ways of uh, understanding the Tao, because of everything we've said about reason and the way that that just the the grounds of being the two on m might be good, uh, except that it conjures because it's Greek, it conjures up too many other Greek ideas, and we're not dealing with a metaphysics like Plato's metaphysics that has a world of Platonic forms, the Tao really is kinetic and it doesn't have, uh, um, and, and, it, and it's not the forms to which existence aspires. Um, objects are going through their own changes and along their own path, but not, not with any kind of reference to any kind of, um, uh, to any kind of special pre-existence example or something. I think that's what he's, uh, that, that's why he's saying the two on is maybe a less good translation. What do you think? Yeah, and that again is a tough one. Um, I mean, the emphasis, the important thing here is that he's not saying that uh, the two on is a good uh, definition mm -hmm. for the Tao. He's saying that uh, reason is not a good definition. Even the way is the closest I think he takes it as, mm -hmm. but it's like only because of the looseness of the term, oh. if I'm not mistaken, um, just because of the fact that it doesn't quite nail down to anything in a hard and fast way. And if there's anything that Lao Tzu seems to be saying about the Tao, it's uh, he's talking around it and not directly hitting it in most cases. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I, I think we... We gave ourselves as an assignment uh, the first 50 pages of this text, including the uh, introduction. You ended up reading a, a good deal more than that. What was your general impression of the text overall? How did you? How did it strike you? I was surprised because I remember having read, I think like years ago, I had pulled it up at the uh, Toronto Reference Library downtown, and of course I couldn't read through the whole thing because I'm just sitting there at the library for however long I have it for. And uh, I was, so I was jumping around, and I was struck by it then, but in terms of the uh, uh, the koan-like aspects or qualities of these little pithy chapters, um, and how they could be meditated upon for deriving some deeper truths from. Uh, reading it all consecutively, just recently, I was uh, surprised at how that sh that opinion shifted initially because initially as i'm reading through it uh it seems like a veiled i mean not even veiled but uh it seems like a a guidebook for government and uh it 
it seems veiled in the sense that it, uh, I feel almost like it feels like a coded guidebook, where it's if you have the keys to understanding it, then uh, it will open up to you. Meaning that if you're somebody who's in a position of government, you're given the keys, sort of like a mason might be given the keys to understanding the deeper mysteries of masonry, um, and thereby you would understand its guidance for good government. Um, but you don't want that kind of information getting into the hands of the common people because they would misinterpret it and take it as, you know, they could potentially take it as being uh, a threat to them and that sort of thing. So that's why it remains veiled. That was kind of what was coming to mind reading through it this time around. That's an interesting guess. I'm, I'm not sure about um, Lao Tzu's motives, uh, but I agree that it's very cursory. Um, I think that, uh, at least by tradition, Lao Tzu, if he existed at all, is some sort of uh, a government advisor, some sort of regional advisor. So when he talks about sages, he just uh, he doesn't just mean enlightened spiritual teachers, although he means that too. But he, I think, probably, and this is where it would be helpful to go to uh, the text in the original language, but I think he probably also means... Uh, sage as some sort of uh, some sort of formalized advisory position because this is the position that, mm. that, that he holds. And one would think that if he really were working in government, uh, the advice he gives about governing would have a much finer point on it than it does. What he'll say is, uh, you know, you want to fulfill people's needs uh, to minimize friction. Or, and then later on he'll say, like, no, no, needs, not wants. Like, don't, uh, and don't put uh, examples of wealth in front of people because, you know, if, if you're, uh, if you show off your wealth, you encourage theft. So the, the advice is, is high level and it's specific and it's motivated by uh, a relationship, I think, that Lao Tzu has between metaphysics and values. Um, he has some idea of of what good civilization looks like, but if but one would think if he were if he were working in a government position, he would have much much more granular ideas about how things uh, should run, and that he'd be a lot clearer in the advice he was giving. Either like we need to minimize friction because friction is bad and friction is bad for these reasons. But he just takes that as red. Like he just thinks you're going to be, uh, you're going to immediately understand why friction is bad. And then this question of, well, how to, you know, what the mechanics of decreasing friction are, uh, he doesn't get into that either. Yeah, and it's interesting because it oscillates back and forth between, uh, it'll talk about the Tao in these very abstract ways, and then hard stop right into the the government of the people, and then hard stop right back again. So it oscillates um, with that. That in itself is... is uh, kind of interesting it, it almost uh, the the implication that i get is that uh, it almost seems like uh, the way to deal with uh, minimizing the friction of the people is to counter every I, I guess you could put it this way counter every positive quality with a negative quality not in the traditional kind of like good and bad but in the sense of like polarities of uh energy so that you're canceling those both out yeah i think 
there's a way in which we can talk about the relationship between metaphysics and values using this text really clearly, because uh, Lao Tzu seems to have a dualist metaphysics, not like a good and evil dualism, the way kind of stupid people talk about it, and not like uh, a self-not-self -self dualism, but these two forces of um, of Tao and Te, where um, the Tao is movement and the Te is like, I don't really know, the ground, maybe the grounds of existence. Because the Tao is both what's manifest and unmanifest, and the day is this gate through which objects come into the world. Um, but they exist, even though they're sort of the the left and right opposing, uh, we'll say opposing forces in the sense that they're the opposites that make up all of existence. They're very, they have a very harmonious existence, and they work together very, very smoothly. So for Lao Tzu, the grounds of existence is this very organized, peaceful, uh, breathing thing. And, uh, and so people experience disharmony to the degree that they create uh, what Crowley calls ganglia, which means like bunches of nerve endings. So something like thought objects or something. And that the that the, the, the value that comes out of that is that, okay, well, if, if the grounds of existence are harmonious, then existence itself should be harmonious. So these uh, things about how to govern, not to promote peace, but to reduce friction, uh, sort, of, sort of come out of that. It's a, it's a very clear example of how, of how our metaphysics can influence our values and our ethics and stuff like this. Um, mm -hmm. That's a, it, the the subject of the Tay is another subject which is a little difficult to wrap your head around uh, <laughs> with what's given in the text. It's, we're told that these things. Part of the definition is ineffability. Like we're told over and over again that the uh, that that that, that the named Tao is not the not yeah, the Tao. Yeah, <laughs> that the um, that we're 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 speaking about something that is definitionally uh, unspeakable. So. Uh, I, I like you, you know, I, I, uh, I thought that it was surprisingly e easy to understand what was being said in many places. Uh, you know, like there's a line that says something like, what is it? Fire is the op heat is the opposite of cold or something like, <laughs> gotcha. yeah, here we are. ease and difficulty, length and shortness, highness and lowness. Music exists through harmony of opposites. Space and time depends upon composition. Like, this isn't that hard to understand. <laughs> but what it's about is completely beyond yeah, why my it's being conception. Said. Yeah. So, uh, and there again, it's, uh, it's in another example of uh, the impression that I get is this constant dance between two extremes. Um, so, like, taking the, uh, the extreme positive and the extreme negative. And I think this is, like, a big part of what's interesting about talking about this book, because it clearly resonated really strongly with Crowley. Uh, he talks about that in the introduction, that he was uh, first struck by it, uh, reading it in 1905 to 1906 on his journey through China. And uh, over the years, he was, it just always was there 
with him, especially in deserted places. And um, when he would recommend it to people, they would never quite get it. <laughs> the way that he did they would be dis they would be unimpressed um so clearly they weren't and he talks about the way that when he was reading it first um it wasn't simply that he read it and oh wow that's really cool it was he would mentally grapple with it or meditate upon it and uh specifically uh not allow himself to fall into his western pre dispositions and preconceptions but try to understand it on its own terms and from its own point of view um and so as a result he's already approaching it with that meditative kind of state that you would approach uh any sacred scripture and i think that's why you know he would recommend it to other people and they wouldn't catch that they wouldn't be reading it in the same way um but it did give life to a lot of his personal points of view and the points of view that come out in the book of the law as well this comparison to the book of the law is interesting because if we have to take this as a thelemic text then um this idea of frictionlessness is really distinct from what we see in liber al a lot of the um uh concepts have corollaries but where Rohor Quit says, no first that I am a god of war and vengeance, in the Doughty King, uh, we see this stuff about, you know, peaceful administrating and uh, ruling without action. And, uh, and I, so I wonder if part of Crowley's embrace of this it has to do with his struggles with accepting and understanding Liber Al, maybe this is in some way more palatable to Yeah, that has to be uh, considered for sure, because uh, he always felt strongly about Taoism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he described his character, Simon If, as a Taoist, uh, a Taoist sage and somebody he wished he could be. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very good. Do you want to just uh, start... Uh, ripping through it, all of that uh, preamble. Let's do <laughs> it. Let's dip. <laughs> so, Darren, I'm going to ask you, what's the dip? <laughs> <laughs> it begins. Okay. So the first, the first chapter is um, it, it sort of glances over the metaphysics. It warns us that the, in Crowley's words, the Tao path is not the all Tao. The name is not the thing named. I think in uh, the um, other translations I've read, it's the Tao that can be named is not the ineffable mm. Tao or something like this. And then here we have uh, unmanifested, it is the secret father of heaven and earth. Manifested, it is their mother. So there's a difference here uh, between Thelemic conceptions, Kabbalistic conceptions, where um, this feminine principle is the kind of pre-manifestation, the Ein Sof or Nuit or something like this. Um, and then the manifested principle, uh, the principle of motion that comes later is, is the male. Uh, here, the manifested principle is the, is the mother. But again, I think, I think this is because this sees the motion as primary, uh, movement coming before space and objects. And then, uh, this is also the where, I, being... this is also where, like, I mean, right off the hop, we have, um, something that rings, 
very uh, uh, familiar from the Book of the Law. Mm-hmm. We have matter in motion. We have uh, um, Hadith being unmanifested and Nuit being the one who shall be known. Um, just these these corollaries to uh, the way that Crowley puts this forth. I'm curious, uh, would you be comfortable with us uh, also including the James Legg version just to compare? Yeah, if you've got some stuff from Legg, let's, go, let's do it. So, I mean, uh, I could read through this whole passage, um, if that's cool. <laughs> let's dip. The Tao that can be trodden is not the enduring and unchanging Tao. The name that can be named is not the enduring and unchanging name. Conceived of as having no name, it is the originator of heaven and earth. Conceived of as having a name, it is the mother of all things. So that's already... Uh, Leg says originator instead of father. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, and the, uh, the difference between manifested and unmanifested becomes named and unnamed mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, conceived of i should say is in brackets in both cases in, of its occurrence which presumably means that the equivalent words were not in the chinese so those are extrapolated uh, or interpolated by leg so named it is having no name it is the originator of heaven and earth having a name it is the mother of all things all th- so heaven and earth being distincted from all things. So it's it's uh, it's it's almost putting the onus on the operator. You know, by trying to name this thing, you mm. are creating the universe. You know, like your your mind that names things is the mother of all things, and heaven and earth is remote from you because uh, because of your naming faculty. It's much more. It's it's almost more cabalistic than the way um, Crowley, yeah. Crowley puts it. It it gives it's one one goes to the creation of man in the Bible with Adam walking around going like the cat he called cat and the lake he called lake and the bird he called bird. It is very uh, like I mean if this was uh, a, an ancient Latin text that we were looking at or an ancient Christian mm-hmm. text then yeah we would probably be thinking of it in those terms like the name nomen being the word for noun and the isness of something uh, versus the non-isness of something and by giving things their names you give them existence and meaning and so the word has meaning and the word takes on form as being important um biblically and uh with crowley of course as well so yeah definitely leads you down that rabbit hole <laughs> it's so difficult man uh because you see this in the leg translation, one can see the Christianity already, right? Two mm. lines, two lines in, um, and it feels very profound and it feels very right. Whereas Crowley's is more opaque, but like to what degree is Crowley accurate? It, it would be helpful to know that Crowley was looking at the Chinese, mm-hmm. and, but. Uh, and but uh... the interesting thing about the leg version um, is mm. uh, that I found when I was comparing, doing a direct one-to-one comparison mm-hmm. to Crowley's version, um, is it does it does lend Crowley some credence. Like I mm. do see, uh, rather than sort of downplaying Crowley's version, it actually does seem like okay, Legg's version in many respects I find maybe not as clearly just right off mm. the hop there, but uh, in many respects I find that his version uh, does ring like a translator 
mm-hmm. going through the text and working his way through and getting consequently too, so close to it that it's a little bit at times hard for him to see the forest for the trees. Yeah. Uh, whereas then Crowley takes that from fresh eyes and from a, um, a spiritually inspired position and is able to give it that spin that uh, uh, brings the life forth and the clarity forth. So there is a level of that. I don't want to go through all of this line by line, but since we're so early in the text, uh, verse 3 of this first chapter says, To understand the mystery, one must be fulfilling one's will. And if one is not thus free, one will gain but a smattering of it. Uh, so um, this this unnameable Tao concept becomes real to you if you're living the Tao. And, and here's more Crowleyism. He calls it the will. Like if you're aligned with your true will, mm-hmm. um, then then you're living the Tao and you'll understand it. Whereas if you're just sort of pissing around and, and finding feet in life, uh, then then this will not ring clear or true. You know, you'll have more... If your concerns are immediate rather than, ah, that's not even right. Well, you know, the the leg version is an interesting, it gives uh, credence to what we were talking about um, in terms of like the, what Crowley was describing as this kind of Christian point of view on the subject, because what he has for line three there uh, is a, uh, and he does this occasionally throughout the text, he, it's a poeticized version of it which I don't know if that's, you know, it's impossible to tell if that was uh, um, for a direct reason, like if there was some kind of a uh, an equivalent poem in the original text, but either way, it's it's necessarily going to be James Legg's poem that he's created out of whatever the original was. Uh, it's always without desire we must be found. If it's deep mystery, we would sound. But if desire always within us be, its outer fringe is all that we shall see. So that's a pretty, uh, you know, we must be without desire. That's a very, in my mind, a very Christian culture perspective. Yeah, and it it hits with what I understand in the other chapters that talk about conduct, at least in the Crowley version. The other chapters that talk about conduct uh, are real are, are sort of about this going without lust of result. And it's not far from what you're reading in the, the James Lig. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a funny little thing on the cover page here. If any sinologist, uh, researcher in sin, I assume. <laughs> Actually, uh, that would be a Chinese expert. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so I might give it a different interpretation. Uh. <laughs> if, if any sinologist offer, object to anything in this translation, let him go absorb his yang in his own yin, as the Americans say, and give me credit for an original masterpiece, whatever Lao Tzu said or meant. I don't know whether yang in his own yin means to shove his head up his ass or his dick up his ass, <laughs> but it's to jam his male principle in his female principle and give me credit for an original masterpiece. Like, whether this is a more accurate translation or whether I made it up out of whole cloth, uh, it's... Um, oh, I'm, I'm glad. I was worried that you wanted to discuss the finer points of that, uh, <laughs> wh- wh- whether, that metaphorical... Uh, <laughs> Whether this Request. is the best, uh, um, the 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 best translation of the Lao Tzu or not, it's still it's still, it's still unique and extremely insightful, and, and has so, its value. You know That's... what? Maybe maybe I made it up, 
uh, bully for me. Like, <laughs> like, hooray, I made it up. That's, that gives me even more points. And, I, I, and I, I've been sort of saying, I think we do have to shove our heads up our ass and give Crowley uh, and, and treat this as a polemic text. Yeah, that's the thing. That's very true. Like, we do have to go there because it is not uh, in Crowley's hands. It is no longer the ancient Chinese text mm. that it was. It, it is the, that ancient Chinese text through leg was the inspiration for this uh, interpretation. I think going on to chapter two, um, this is just a list of pairs of opposites. Uh, at least to start with, all men know that beauty and ugliness are correlative as are skill and clumsiness. One implies and suggests the other. Time and space, uh, also music exists through harmony. Time and space depend upon composition. By use of this method, the sage can fulfill his will without action, utter his word without speech. So he's pointing out that uh, a refrigerator is not the opposite of deep space. Uh, when you're talking about opposites, you're talking about um, one class or one type of energy that exists along a continuum, and you're looking at the opposite ends of that spectrum. So when you talk about heat and cold, you talk, you're actually talking about temperature. And the extremes are 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 hot and and cold. So um, and and this is going to be fundamental to everything he's going to do going forward. Because um, I think I don't think it's in the Tao Te King. I think it's in the Guangzhou. But like in the old times, uh, leaders ruled by doing nothing is a is, is something that that struck me really hard. Um, and uh, and how you know success comes by uh, not striving and this sort of thing. Uh, it's, it's the, this, this idea of... of um, There's a good deal of that in here. Yeah, this, this sort of uh, fulfilling the will without acting or uttering word without speech, this is the, the thesis that he expound in the whole rest uh, of the book. And just to get it out of the way, I have to say that the, there's a logical fallacy going on, and I think if we just point at it, then we can see it and move past it. You don't warm things up by cooling them down. <laughs> uh, you know, if something's on if something's on fire, you don't add more heat to to to, to quench the fire. Um, the um, uh, so just just because uh, they're opposite poles of degrees of the same force or something like that. We don't see this in any of his other examples, how, you know, since success and failure are opposites on the spectrum, uh, failure is just success, like, <laughs> and that if you try to maximize your success, you make failure inevitable because, you know, you're, uh, I don't, I don't see how uh, these the opposite ends of this spectrum fold together in the way that he's talking about. And there are some mechanisms he mentions later on, like displaying wealth invites theft, and so therefore wealth is poverty. Uh, but, um, uh, but, but aside from picky little mechanisms like that, I don't see the general principle that he's pointing at. There's a lot of uh, that logical fallacy, like looking at it from that perspective, uh, and it does make me wonder in a lot of cases. So, I mean, it, it almost feels like in a, in, in a number of the cases throughout the book, um, it's maybe... It functions well as a jumping off point where you start to extrapolate off of it and uh, try to build it into some meaning that means something to you. Um, I don't know. You know, that's obviously not 
the ideal way that this text should function it should be saying something <laughs> but uh it does like for instance the idea of like the opposites that are constantly brought up um does m bring to mind the idea of uh the opposites above the abyss uh being um um what's the term well basically no longer contradictory i yeah. suppose um being resolved um all contradictories being resolved that's the uh the way of parsing it but yeah again that's an extrapolation that's not actually directly put into the text at least uh maybe it's it's hinted at in crowley's a little bit more heavily than james legs can you read the fourth verse of the of the leg uh, i have in crowley's all things arise without diffidence they grow and none interferes they change according to their natural order without lust of result the work is accomplished yet it continues in its orbit without goal. This work is done unconsciously. This is why its energy is indefatigable. Yeah, and that's a very strong Crowley concept that comes up again and again as well. well the idea result. that, yeah, if something is doing its will, then like if the organs of the body are doing their will, then they are doing so silently and you are unaware of them. But when you become aware of them, that means that there is something wrong. Um, but I will read the uh, James Legg version of that passage. All things spring up and there is not one which declines to show itself they grow and there is no claim made for their ownership they go through their processes and there is no expectation of a reward for the results the work is accomplished and there is no resting in it as an achievement yeah so that's not bad there's actually a little uh, uh poetic phrase tagged onto that as well the work is done but how, no one can see. Mm. Tis this that makes the power not cease to be. I don't like his poetry, to be honest. <laughs> 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 try, James Leg. try. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe being a sinologist is not, uh, is, is not a, a prerequisite for being Cine a... Sinologist, maybe. Great, 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 po great, great poet. Uh, the, so that yeah, the um, uh, this is one of the things that makes me skeptical about this as a as as a better Taoist book than the James Legg version, um, because you know it's funny Crowley's so radical in so many places. The, but there are, are, are some times, especially when he's interpreting the philosophy of other people, that he seems to take the easiest out. Uh, and, and whether he's wrong or he's right about an, the interpretation of, of the Chinese, the fact that it seems so easy makes me wonder why we need his translation. Because... Uh, uh, you know, there's a radical version of this that says doing nothing actually is going to accomplish work. And that seems just wrong on its face. Um, mm. But it's sort of what the text points at in a lot of places. And I think the radicalness of that idea is part of what makes it interesting. You know, uh, be like water, the Bruce Lee thing that we're familiar with. It's like, it's not don't be strong or don't, it's like, just be responsive. Don't have goals. Like you know, don't try to win the fight. Just, just, just move. <laughs> you know, uh, in your environment, 
so in some places in the Tao Te Ching, it, it really says like, do nothing, Minim, you know, minimize friction, don't accomplish stuff. Whereas Crowley comes up with this, puts in his idea of lust of result, where you still have to work. You have to work very, very hard. You just don't uh, work with uh, a, a lot of hope of accomplishment. You work with an enjoyment of doing work. And it's not, a, to me, a clearly right interpretation of the text. It just seems to be what Lao Tzu must mean if you try to reference his advice to your own experience. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the easiest possible interpretation, and I don't understand why Crowley thinks it's so radical or why we needed, <laughs> needed this. <laughs> and I guess the, to some extent that's the important thing for us to keep our, our minds on is uh, what it meant to Crowley and how that informs his philosophies mm. and his his way of doing things um, because we are not going to get the ancient mm. chinese perspective on this because i mean i mean briefly looking at the ancient chinese perspective on this just at a guess i would imagine if you're going to be talking about how to govern a people uh, it would make sense from the point of view of i don't even know when lao tzu is around to be honest with you uh, offhand um but i'm guessing it would have been at a time when uh, there would have been a lot more unstable situations going on around various states in the country at the time and i would see where okay if you're going to be governing a people you will have governors people t people taking charge who are going to be warlords and they're going to be embroiling things into... They're going to be using things to Im, to go after personal glory, personal gain. Uh, you're going to have uh, um, difficulties keeping the peace and keeping the peace with neighboring states and that sort of thing. So from that perspective, I can see where it would make a lot of sense to uh, minimize the amount of friction going on in your state and in neighboring states and that this kind of advice can be very useful to keep in the forefront of your mind as a governor in that kind of situation um, taking it to an extreme from a completely different point of view in a completely different time and place um, may just not line up mm -hmm. uh, to, so it looks like the Tao Te King is first ascribed to Lao Tzu in the first century BC. This is the first time we say he wrote it. Um, and then there's also some idea that Lao Tzu taught some religious ceremony to Confucius in the third century BC. So that would be, we'd be looking at the third century BC for Lao Tzu, um, if, as best we can. This according to the introduction by Stephen Skinner. Here. So that's like a contemporary with Alexander the Great? Yeah. Roughly? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, I would imagine that that would have been... Uh, and I, I, I'm not like an expert. I am not a sinologist. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what the uh, state of uh, uh, China was at the time or anything like that. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, largely feudal. And there was probably a lot of difficulty in governing peoples at the time. There certainly was everywhere else in the world. <laughs> uh, so this, these first two chapters and, uh, and the preface s seemed to make up a little story to me where we get the, um, where we get the, the, the definition of the Tao as clear as we can, some vague picture of the metaphysics, 
And then this idea of opposites, which sets up the thesis for the rest of the book, as far as I'm concerned. Um, from here, I'm ambivalent about how to go forward, whether we keep going chapter by chapter or whether we do something to kind of organize in terms of subject. I have, I think of it as being governance, conduct, metaphysics, and meditation being the sort of four chief subjects dealt with here. And I've tried to make a bit of a key that says these are the chapters that deal with governance. These are the chapters that deal with conduct, mm -hmm. um, etc. But um, but I don't know what you were thinking from this place. Um, well, I mean, yeah, we can we can jump around a little bit. Uh, maybe just to switch gears in terms of some of the content, because we have spoken a bit about the uh, political angle mm. of this thing. Uh, we can also take a look at, uh, um, and I just posted a portion on the Toronto Thelema page today. There's a, a portion in chapter 64 i believe okay um yeah if you don't mind looking that up just so i can confirm it should be entitled forethought at the outset i think i have oh uh 63 63 okay um okay so chapter 63 forethought at the outset it's a little bit more of a personal advice mm -hmm. uh, it takes the form of personal advice i would say act without lust of result work without anxiety taste without attachment to flavor esteem small things great and few things many repel violence with gentleness this make puts me in mind of the fact that uh, in a big way a lot of what's being said by lao tzu throughout this book um makes me think of it as being the uh rough equivalent or analogy to the Buddha and his teachings mm -hmm. on non-attachment. So possibly it could be food for thought in that sense as well. But again, we're not really looking at the, uh, we're looking more at Crowley's interpretation of it, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I didn't look at uh, James Legg's original translation of this passage yet, so it might be interesting to compare. Yeah, just because... Um, in, when, when dealing with these philosophy books, um, often things, when you think you, you know what they mean, they, the, the, there are technical terms that, that show up. Mm -hmm. And this thing about lust of result is a technical term for Crowley. But I want, I, it's making me wonder what it means when he goes to it in this. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wonder what the leg says for lust of result. Yeah, let's compare that uh, right off. It is the way of the Tao to act without thinking of acting, to conduct affairs without feeling the trouble of them, to taste without discerning any flavor, to consider what is small as great and a few as many, and to recompense injury with kindness. That sounds super Christian. <laughs> um, and also, incidentally, he has uh, uh, Crowley's done his own uh, mm. interpretations of the titles as well. This one's called "Thinking in the Beginning," as opposed to "Forethought." Forethought at the, at outset. the outset. Yeah, this thing of to act without thought, as opposed to act without lust of result. This very—it's. Um, is it different? I don't know. There's this. There's a. A spontaneity, that seems to be important in both systems you know when you're for Crowley I know that there's um 
one of the duties uh, for Crowley is to rejoice. And I was trying to, I was trying to parse out this out with a, a friend of mine, what rejoice might mean. Like, what's the difference between sex that Crowley calls orgiastic uh, versus, you know, just uh, having sex? Or what's the difference between feasting, where we're told to feast mm-hmm. a bunch, versus, um, uh, uh, versus just like eating too much, you know? And, uh, and there's a few other ones. And uh, I, I think I ended up deciding that, that to rejoice, uh, there has to be an ecstatic quality, you know, mm. where, where the movement becomes spontaneous, uh, not just standing in the fridge and absentmindedly <laughs> grazing, <laughs> but like, but that there's, uh, but that it becomes bodily, spontaneous, spiritual, without mind in a way that's that's beautiful somehow right and so that this this quality of rejoicing is this quality of spending time in maybe like a flow state or something and so it is very very similar i i think this idea of of thoughtless action to mm-hmm. acting without lust of result although lust of result i think can apply to activities of self-discipline as well where you uh, where you know every day you get up and you go running, you get up and you go running, you get up and you go running, and you may have to think about it a lot to talk yourself into it on a day that you're tired or have other priorities or something. So it's not that it's not thoughtless, but um, but it's like I'm doing it because I'm doing it uh, rather than uh, because you know I want to run a one minute mile by my birthday or mm-hmm. something. You know, so the, the, the with lust of result can apply to very, very disciplined activities as well. I don't know if thoughtlessness applies as well to disciplined activities, at least in the beginning. It Could- certainly comes up a lot with Crowley, the way that Crowley talks about it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, another uh, recent posting um, comes from Crowley's commentary, the new comment on the Book of the Law, uh, on chapter 2, uh, verse 30, which is like the, the fall of because and uh, be he damned for a dog and all that sort of thing. Uh, there is no reason why a star should continue in its orbit. Let her rip. <laughs> <laughs> or dip, as the uh, case may be. Every time the conscious acts, it interferes with the subconscious, which is Hadith. It is the voice of man and not of a god. Any man who listens to reason ceases to be a revolutionary. And then he talks about how the Kabbalists uh, represent the mind as a complex of six elements, whereas the will is single. Um, and uh, so it is some, it's a recurring idea that Crowley talks about in that respect, mm-hmm. where it's uh, uh, when things are working properly and doing their will, they are unconscious in the sense that we think of things as being conscious or unconscious. Uh, let's look at a, a, a chapter or two on uh, conduct then uh since um we're uh moving on to ethics we're, of some we're, sort we're on we're on this thing about the way to behave and 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 what success looks like and these sorts of things just at random i'm i'm on chapter 13 contempt for circumstances ooh that sounds nice <laughs> i like Sexy. that favor and disgrace are equally to be shunned Honor and calamity are alike to be regarded as, as adhering to the personality. What is that which is written concerning favor and disgrace? Disgrace is the fall from favor. He then that hath the favor hath fear, and its loss begetteth fear yet greater 
of a further fall. What is that which is written regarding honor and calamity? It is this attachment to the body which makes calamity possible. For were one bodiless, what evil could befall him? Therefore let him that regardeth himself rightly administer also a kingdom, and let him govern it who loveth it as another man loveth himself. And Crowley says, loving myself does not mean with extreme devotion, but rather with passionless indifference. So here, here we have this idea of that, that attaining things means uh, to be under threat of losing things. Mm-hmm. And so um, it doesn't say this explicitly, but, I, but, but what's the motivation for work at all then it's like you have to have goals that lie outside of yourself and your immediate circumstances you know you want to you want to be working uh perhaps for a cause or something uh because or or to not be working at all which is one of the things that i i suspect uh, uh might be being pointed at um, it seems it rings to me of like what we see in all asceticism, which is like in you know ancient Greek philosophers, um, Buddhists, uh, Christ, ancient Christians, uh, and uh, monks, and that sort of thing, where it's uh, abstaining from things in order that they no longer rule over you, and so that you can withdraw from life in order to be more in control, so that you are not controlled by your circumstances. Uh, that being the theory, that's what rings it rings of. Yeah, uh, Lao Tzu finishes by saying, "Let he that regardeth himself correctly rule also the kingdom." Uh, so it, it's it's like Crowley's fear is failure and the forerunner of failure. Um, you know, tr- having things, both having things and not having things, are dreadful circumstances. Because if you don't have things, then that's pathetic. And if you do have things, then you're afraid of losing them. And then it's even worse when you become pathetic because you have something to compare your state (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, to. So uh, one needs to be contemptuous of all circumstances whatsoever uh, so that one never fears to lose them. And then then if if you have this correct comportment of... Uh, being contemptuous of your circumstances, kind of no matter what they are, not striving for better or worse circumstances, um, then it empowers you to do work. Uh, it's not like you're abstain. The goal is not to abstain from work to administer yourself more correctly. It's like, it's like okay, now that you're not you're you're not living with these daily anxieties, you're the right person for the job somehow. It does sound more and more like this is. Uh a contemporary uh, with the ancient Greeks where they are, uh, from our present perspective, looking back on it, they're pulling themselves up by their bootstraps from the uh, depths of uh, uh, Mm -hmm. pre-reason into the world of reason where you're being a little bit more detached from your passions and you're able to thereby gain control and extricate yourself from just being at the whim of all the craziness of life um so it does sound like that's what's being said but you it, it, it does seem also like you have to read it sensibly mm-hmm. and from you know with w- not just taking it uh, as say somebody who just reads the letter and loses the spirit of the law um i want to hit maybe two more chapters on conduct and then uh and then i think we have to 
kind of see what we can say to to wrap it up. Sounds good. Um, but since we're since we're on conduct, and since that's gonna, I don't know if any of our listeners are involved in governance, but if they're really <laughs> curious about Lao Tzu's advice on governance, they can read this text for themselves. Uh, it's it's uh, $1,700, which is a bargain, Let you know, less than $100 a page. <laughs> Consider it a, a Taoist act to uh, to purchase it at that price. Less, less than, sorry, less than less than 20 bucks a page. So, uh, but uh, it's available for free on free. <laughs> yeah, you could also read it for free. <laughs> uh, what else have I got on conduct? Chapter nine, I also said was on conduct. Why? I don't know I that the that? Uh, incidentally, I don't know that the uh, the version that I was reading for free online, in lieu of spending seventeen hundred dollars on a copy that may or may not actually exist at some other place <laughs> and be sent to me. Um, the, the version that I was reading online at Sacred Texts, I believe, okay. uh, it was. I don't believe it had Crowley's commentary. It oh, just okay. had the text itself, but didn't have the. I didn't notice the commentary there. So. That's weird. Yeah, unless it's all way down at the bottom of the the page or something like that, or maybe not italicized since HTML is weird. Well, you just con- you just quoted a, a portion of commentary with uh, I believe that last yeah verse, and I didn't recognize that. So. Oh, okay. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Chapter nine: The way of reticence. Fill not a vessel lest it spill in carrying. Meddle not with a sharpened point by feeling it constantly, or it will soon become blunted. Gold and jade endanger the house of their possessor. Wealth and honors lead to arrogance and envy and bring ruin. Is thy way famous and thy name becoming distinguished? Withdraw thy work once done into obscurity. This is the way of heaven. Here is the mystery of virtue. It creates all and nourishes all, Yet it does not adhere to them. It operates all, but it knows not of them, nor proclaims it. It directs all, but without conscious control. Here we here we are again, uh, pairs of opposites, right? And, and some of the mechanism for how uh, these opposites become each other. Gold and jade endanger the house of their possessor. Wealth and honors lead to arrogance and envy, bringing ruin. So if you want success, striving for success is is not helpful because becoming successful is a precursor to becoming a failure and the mechanism of that is 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 greed and envy um so he does try to flesh out this thesis a little bit more by talking about some of the the mechanism by which failure becomes success and success becomes failure um uh it's quite difficult to think of it as inevitable but i mean it's it you could find examples where he's right in specific cases it does seem like uh again it's it's it sounds like a the stoic argument mm-hmm. you know uh, moderation and thereby you avoid all the tempests of uh um fortune to whatever extent you can and in whatever you can't you accept that's, it, it feels like that's the, the uh, where that's leading, at least, mm-hmm. anyway. But it's, it's just almost like it's spoken in the, uh, in the initial stages of the statement, but then doesn't follow it through. Well, here's the conclusion at the end of the second verse. Is thy way famous and thy name becoming distinguished? I cannot read that. There's a hyphen uh, where the word breaks across two lines, and I keep reading the line <laughs> break. Distinguished. <laughs> Is thy way famous and thy name becoming distinguished? 
withdraw thy work once done into obscurity. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about uh, this idea of not working at all. Maybe Crowley is, is kind of on the mark here with his lust of result thing, because it says, withdraw thy work once done mm -hmm. into obscurity. This is the way of heaven. So the, the, you, um, there, there really is, it seems like something motivating the Taoist, whatever that is, mm -hmm. you know, we, we find our own true will. Um, but, uh, but then if they, if they realize <laughs> that, uh, that they're getting some sort of a reputation, uh, they, they, they want to take the heat off. <laughs> the idea, <laughs> the idea is not to, is to have the space to do your work, not be distracted by the fame that comes along with doing a great job. Yeah. I mean, it, it does feel almost like we have to extrapolate a little bit, mm. uh, or interpolate or whatever, uh, from this. Uh, but it does sound like that type of thing where, you know, you, you hear these stories of people who've gotten exactly what they wanted and they've achieved fame and fortune. Then it all came horribly crashing down. Um, but I mean, it doesn't happen for everybody. No, but I think entrepreneurs are often surprised by how little time they get to spend doing the thing they love doing and mm -hmm. how much time they have to spend running the business. And, uh, you know, the, if, if you become a celebrity chef, then you have to become, do, do this business of being a celebrity probably well more than more time than you spend cooking in your own restaurant, you know, designing your own menu whatever and then when you do go to cook in your own restaurant people want to come back and see you and you know and having to entertain people and, and and you know humor them when they yeah. they waylay you in the street and it be, it's a it's a distraction from the work that you you claim to love to begin with um so there i mean there there's obviously something uh something to it there's a lot of seek the level as well it's like using water as uh uh, something to emulate in that sense that it's constantly seeking the level it it fills the low places so the people can be content with filling the low places uh let's finish with this then admire thou the highway of water is not water the soul of the life of things whereby they change yet it seeketh its level it abideth content in obscurity so also it resembleth the Tao in this way thereof. And as the waters flow back and we retract our wings, climbing higher, I thank you for listening. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city and join us again in the darkly splendid abode.